Before we begin this week's episode, please note that our conversation with Jessica was recorded prior to Monday's announcement in the Bostock v. Clayton County case and R.G. G.R. Harris case. In a 6-3 decision authored by Justice Neil Gorsuch, the court held that an individual cannot be fired, either because of their gender identity or sexual orientation. This is a big win for LGBTQ folks and comes as a shock to many conservatives expecting a 5-4 decision the other way. With that said, a lot of the information in this episode is still extremely relevant, but for more information on the opinions, please visit the wonderful resources of SCOTUS blog and Oyes.com. Now, this week's episode. Hey, it's Jared. So as many of you know, June is LGBTQ Pride Month, and while normally you would see parades with large rainbow flags and a variety of other promotional efforts from corporations to try to get you to buy rainbow things, whatever, problems with that end zone, right? This year it's very different. This year it's a lot of online activism, as well as consolidated movements with BLM protests, but... Before we say, well, this year is a lost cause, or this year we're just going to simply skip over Pride Month, there's something really important that could happen for the LGBTQ community. And that's that there are two U.S. Supreme Court cases currently waiting an opinion that have already been argued that could significantly change the landscape for LGBTQ protection and society. They both deal with Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which concerns employment and employment discrimination, right? In the same way you can't fire someone solely because of their race, the question now presented to the court is, can you fire someone because they are A, not straight, or B, transgender? So there's one question about gender identity and one question about sexual orientation. And while we await these decisions, it kind of got me thinking, well, how have we got to this point? Because the Supreme Court has been a really important instrument in civil rights. So how... Are we at this point? How are we going to hear another big case for the LGBTQ community? So I sit down with Jessica Chiraboga, who is a national student board member of GLSEN and also a Supreme Court buff to really understand the legal history behind LGBTQ legislation and Supreme Court decisions and how we ended up where we are today. So stay tuned. Hi, Jessica. Hello, how are you? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing well, doing well. First of all, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited because I think this topic is one that has a lot of, a lot of it's in the nitty gritty I and mean, kind of the details. So I'm really excited that you're here to help us break it down. But before we begin, if you could just give a little introduction on who you are and why you're here. Yeah, I'd love to. So my name is Jessica Chiraboga. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a graduating senior from Glendora High School in Glendora, California, headed off to Dartmouth College in the fall. Some background on me is I work for and currently work for an organization called GLSEN, which is a gay, lesbian, straight education network. It's located in New York City, and the goal of my work as a National Student Council member and then also a policy liaison is to just help end bullying and discrimination in schools nationwide for LGBTQ plus students and their allies. So that's our main mission. And a lot of my advocacy work has come through there for the LGBTQ plus community. I guess my love for the court has really come just independently and through a program called Youth in Government, which both of us share a common thread in. 
Yeah, and I think some of the work that Glisten does is really amazing. So before we kind of get into the status quo and current legal protections or lack thereof for LGBTQ people, take us back in the history books here. Where does a lot of the laws regarding homosexuality in the U.S. start? And then how does that lead us to where we are now? That's an amazing question because from our nation's founding, several states actually had sodomy legislation, which is sodomy is anal or oral sex, laws against loitering or soliciting sexual favors, even laws, for example, in Los Angeles that prohibited entertainers from wearing clothes of the opposite gender. So LGBTQ plus people would have been persecuted, obviously, under these laws, and there would have been little opportunity to appeal the judgment to the Court of Appeals or even the Supreme Court which is the process that we often see today in terms of LGBTQ plus rights. It's worth noting though, that some states or towns would have punished men at a far higher rate than women because of either ignorance or a greater secrecy that surrounded female sexual relations as opposed to males. Mm. But where I truly believe LGBTQ plus judicial history really starts to change is in 1958. There's a case called One Inc. v. Olson And in this case, the court has to determine whether the LA-based one homosexual magazine qualifies as obscenity. But in this case, the court rules that homosexual writing is not obscene, and therefore homosexual writing is protected under the First Amendment. Why this is so important is that it was the first LGBTQ plus case the highest court had taken up, and it resulted in a victory not only for the press at large, but for building community through the media, which is as we see today, is a big part of how LGBTQ plus people are able to spread awareness and build community. So then as we move into the later 20th century, what starts to happen? So in 1971, 1973, and 1974, the Kentucky and Washington Court of Appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court saw early challenges to state prohibitions on same-sex marriage and affirmed these state prohibitions. One of the most famous that automatically comes to mind is the case of Baker v. Nelson. In this case, uh, Jack Baker and Michael McConnell applied for a marriage license in Hennepin County in Minnesota, and they are refused, obviously, because they are both men. They end up bringing their case up to the Minnesota Supreme Court, are still denied the right to marry, and then appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the court says, we're not even going to hear this case. It doesn't raise a federal question. It doesn't merit our investigation. Wow. So then as we progress through the 70s into the 80s, what are some other major developments we start to see? Yeah, so for the sports lovers and the sports fanatics, 1977 rolls around and the New York County Supreme Court takes up the case of Richards v. United States Tennis Association. Renee Richards was prohibited from entering in the 1976 United States Open as a transgender woman, even though she was winning female tournaments and doing very well. However, the court is able to step in, issue an injunction, and allow her to compete in 1977, and she's able to play the sport she loves. Next up comes 1986 with one of the most consequential decisions in Supreme Court history, Bowers v. Hardwick. In the midst of the AIDS crisis, Michael Hardwick throws a beer bottle into an outside trash can at a Georgia bar. The police cite him for public drinking, which I think is a little bizarre for throwing a beer bottle in an outside trash can, but I'm not an expert on that and give him a summons with the wrong date written on the summons slip. So Hardwick actually ends up missing his court appearance. The police then issue an arrest warrant, 
and find Hardwick engaged in oral sex with another man when they enter his apartment. Hardwick fights this charge, saying this is a private act and he had a right to engage in this act. But the Supreme Court eventually finds Georgia's sodomy law constitutional. This precedent will endure until Lawrence v. Texas strikes it down and establish the right for LGBTQ plus people to engage in consensual same-sex relations under the due process clause. So then as we move closer and closer to kind of the quote-unquote modern era, what continues to happen? So after this decision, the 90s come around. 1993 arrives and Naninia Bear and Janora Dancel are fighting for the right to marry. The Hawaii Supreme Court rules in Bayer versus Lewin that not allowing same-sex couples to marry could be unconstitutional given Hawaii's sex discrimination ban, which obviously their sex discrimination ban wouldn't have been directly related to sexual orientation, but that's a way that the Supreme Court and other several state Supreme Courts found a way to invalidate and rule unconstitutional same-sex marriage bans. What is far more important to note, however, is that this ruling had quite the opposite effect on gay marriage, consequently or inconsequently. Hawaiians amended their state constitution in 1998 to give their state legislators the authority to define marriage as solely between a man and a woman. And two years earlier, in part of the public outcry and blowback to this Supreme Court, state Supreme Court decision, Bill Clinton signed into law the Defense of Marriage Act. So, yeah, that first of all, great job on kind of taking us from the very beginning all the way through the 20th century. And I think there's a lot of important information there that builds up to a lot of the major decisions that people now know. So DOMA, to me, and I might be wrong on this, so correct me if I am, mm-hmm. is kind of the first fuse that ignites the larger debate about same-sex marriage. Like, while this Hawaiian Supreme Court decision obviously seems impactful, it was not like the national conversation starter where I think DOMA is. And DOMA kind of kicks off what I would say is like this 20-year period, maybe even 10 years, where a lot of things start to change. So can you just like detail exactly what DOMA is and kind of the thought process behind it? Yes, definitely. I think you're absolutely right. And that DOMA is starting that national conversation because you have a bunch of states sort of squabbling and trying to figure out what does marriage mean to us? What are the benefits that we're going to give to people in our state? And so it definitely rose that conversation. And as we'll see later in this chronology, it's going to be really crucial in setting the stage for ultimately national legalization of same-sex marriage. But in describing what DOMA is, the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996 was federal legislation that defined marriage for federal purposes as a union between a man and a woman. States were also given the power to refuse to recognize same-sex marriages granted by other states. So if you're in one state like California and you end up going to a state like Texas that's not allowing it at the time, your marriage is not going to be recognized. What's also important to note is that DOMA enjoyed a great amount of support from Democrats and Republicans alike in both houses and was signed into law by President Bill Clinton. So we see this pattern of both parties sort of changing their positions on a lot of these social issues and these issues that advocates have been fighting for for a long time. In fact, Clinton ends up releasing a statement before signing DOMA stating that while he opposes discrimination of LGBTQ plus people on the local, state, and national level, he firmly opposes governmental recognition of same gender marriages. So, so yeah, there's that's sort a, of that tension. Yeah, that seems like a kind of an odd position logically to take here. 
because you're going to basically permit a second class status and then don't want any of the ripple effect that comes from that. But I think to clarify here, and I, you make a good point, which is that the Democrats were not so much the party. And I mean, you could make the argument they're still not like a full on party uh, of LGBTQ plus people and their rights because Clinton doubles down on his commitment to create a legal distinction with the internal policy of don't ask, don't tell. So could you just clarify what that is for all of us? Yes. So Don't Ask, Don't Tell was introduced in 1993. So this would have been three years before DOMA. And to the Clinton administration, it was sort of seen as a compromise. On one side, you have these gay activists that Clinton is talking to that are wanting the military to overturn their since World War II ban on gay and lesbian service members. On the other side, talking in Clinton's ear, you have uh, military officials, generals, the public, et cetera, fearing that allowing openly gay and lesbian service members is going to lower morale, it's going to lead to shower creepers, et cetera. So as Clinton saw it initially, the way forward was don't ask, don't tell, in which gay and lesbian service members could serve, but not openly. Military officials didn't ask service members about their sexual orientation. Service members didn't talk about it and didn't disclose it to the people they were working with and fighting alongside. And military officials couldn't pursue, meaning they couldn't dig into your private life to uncover your sexual orientation. And in the late 2000s, you actually end up having federal court injunctions on the ban, ruling that this ban is discriminatory by violating the due process clause. Interesting. So that then resolves sexual orientation in the military. But as anyone who's been probably paying attention during the Trump presidency knows, there was a moment in which Trump vehemently came out against transgender service. For anyone who thinks that transgender service members are just a very small fraction, it's a lot more people than you think when I was doing the research. I don't have the exact number, but it's definitely not a small, small percentage of people. So Jessica, could you detail exactly where is the status of transgender service members at this moment? So as we know, in 2017, President Trump decided to tweet to indicate his opposition to transgender individuals serving in the U.S. military. We had several lawsuits followed by our big name LGBTQ plus advocacy organizations. But ultimately, with all those court cases and with all those lawsuits, in Doe v. Trump, which the Supreme Court actually ended up deciding in 2019, they allow a revised version of the transgender military ban to stand. So what I mean by revised is people who came out as transgender and received a diagnosis of gender dysphoria between 2016, when the ban was lifted, and when the new ban came into effect in April 2019, they were still permitted to serve. So hopping off of the military for a little bit, because that question still seems to be one that needs to be resolved, probably the most famous court case, or I mean, some people think it's a piece of legislation that came was in 2015 with Obergefell v. Hodges, which legalizes gay marriage across the entire nation. So could you describe this case in specific, how it kind of got to where it is, and why it is so important now in the years forward? So the factors that you mentioned and that you asked about that are leading to this are continued advocacy. You're having increased media representation, shout out to the L word, countries across the world that are legalizing same-sex marriage, and a greater legal acceptance of the argument for same-sex marriage as seen in Vermont and Massachusetts. 
obviously we still have to realize that there are Americans who fiercely opposed same-sex marriage. So gaining public support and moving state by state was sort of crucial to getting the Supreme Court to even take on such a critical case and being willing to, to sort of issue a ruling in this. Something that I sort of found fascinating as I've been diving into this is uh, Justice Ginsburg, who's currently on the Supreme Court, actually uh, commented that the ruling in Roe v. Wade was too soon for the American public to sort of get behind, and mm. that she believed if the ruling had come when the American public was more supportive of abortion rights, there would have been less abor anti-abortion pushback. So that's something sort of interesting to think about, and that was certainly something that a lot of these attorneys and advocates were thinking about before or, or while they were making these legal challenges to same-sex marriage. Hmm. So as lawyers, activists, and LGBTQ plus people advocated and fought, the Supreme Court's 2013 decision in United States v. Windsor really helped set the stage for complete federal legalization of gay marriage. And once again, that's connected to DOMA. So in this case, Edith Windsor's late spouse, Thea Clara Spire, has passed away, and the federal government under DOMA ends up taxing Windsor for the estate of her late spouse, something that just wouldn't have happened for a straight couple. The straight couple would have just gotten an exemption and they wouldn't have had to pay over $363,000 on their spouse's estate. The Supreme Court decides that DOMA takes away the power of states, in this case, to decide for themselves what they define as gay marriage and that DOMA violates the equal protection promises of the Fifth Amendment. The curtain opens after this case in 2014 when SCOTUS permits same-sex marriage in Virginia, Oklahoma, Utah, Wisconsin, and Indiana. But the play of full equality and full dignity begins and starts in 2015 with the court's ruling in Abergefell v. Hodges. Jim and John Arthur married in Maryland, and since Arthur had ALS, it became their mission to ensure that their marriage would also be valid in Ohio. So this case is not only the case of Jim and John, it also becomes the case of several other couples who are consolidated in a marriage of Elby Hodges. In a 5-4 opinion by former Justice Kennedy, the court finds that same-sex marriage is protected under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, and in doing so ends up legalizing same-sex marriage across all 50 states. And I think, as you mentioned, this is definitely not like a one-stop movement here. This was, there was not an on-off switch here. While I mentioned earlier that Domo kind of gets the ball rolling, there's a lot of things that have to occur up until this point. And it's funny, I always think looking into the exact cases themselves is pretty interesting, because really the argument here, based on this description for Obergefell, was like a privileges and immunities argument, which is that, okay, if Maryland's saying it's okay, other states ought to recognize, which has the same effect of just saying this law is facially unconstitutional, but does so in a way that is probably more tolerable to someone like Justice Kennedy. But anyway, so after Obergefell, we continue to go forward. In the past two years, we've had some really big developments into kind of the expansion of rights for LGBTQ people, right? Marriage was the key kind of linchpin one, but now there's further issues to be resolved. And some of the cases that we wanted to talk about was first Masterpiece Cake Shop, and unfortunately, that didn't really produce any result for that matter, but an important question nonetheless. And then two cases that are currently awaiting decisions in Boston, Clayton County, and RGGR Harris. 
So if you could kind of give us a little bit of a lowdown on all of those and where we stand right now. So in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, a case that you mentioned, a lot of people in the advocacy community and the conservative community and a bunch of different communities that have been watching these legal challenges. So in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, some expected SCOTUS to finally settle the issue of whether a religious person could deny LGBTQ plus people services. In this case though, the court actually rules much more narrowly, not answering the larger question of whether a religious person could deny services, but instead finding issue with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission's hostility towards Jack Phillips, the baker, in violation of the First Amendment's free exercise clause. The waiting game is continuing in that case of whether a religious person can deny LGBTQ plus people services. We're waiting right now for decisions in the consolidated case of Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia and Altitude Express v. Zarda on whether discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation violates Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And in RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes versus Equal Employment Opportunity Commission on whether discrimination on the basis of gender identity violates Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So both cases are dealing with Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but they're t tackling two different issues, which is sexual orientation and gender identity. But for now, I'll continue waking up a little before 7 a.m. Pacific <laughs> Standard Time each Monday morning, waiting on a decision. I love checking out the SCOTUS blog that has a live updated feed of all the decisions that are coming out. And I feel an immense sense of disappointment when everybody's like, they've released all their opinions. You'll have to wait till next week. And I'm like, oh no, I'm gonna have to wake up early again. But when yeah. the day comes, when the Monday comes, I'm gonna be excited to read through the opinion and see what the final decision is. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, SCOTUS blog's an awesome resource for that. But yeah, I think the general takeaway I kind of got from all of this is it's still very much a touch and go subject and not something that really has been narrowed down. But if we look at the history that you just described, that kind of follows in line with a lot of how this has happened so far, which is a setback, a step forward, a step forward, a setback, a step forward, a step forward. And then, you know, it's kind of a slow grueling process. And I think a lot of people are hoping that in these cases, whether it's Bostock or RGG or Harris, and there's a likelihood that those cases might come down with very different opinions based on the way the court is composed right now. People are just really wanting a decision, I think, as you alluded to, right? It's time to tackle the question head on and kind of keep people out of the waiting game. But yeah, very, very interesting to look forward to. So the last thing we'll kind of touch on for today is some of the, I don't like to say auxiliary issues because they're still incredibly, incredibly important, but some other laws that pertain specifically to the LGBTQ community, such as banning conversion camps for minors and allowing same-sex couples to adopt children. So what is kind of the general layout of that right now? Currently, gay conversion therapy is still legal in 30 states, so that sort of offers some context on what's happening nationwide. If you're not familiar with gay conversion therapy to the listeners out there, it's the practice of sending a minor to therapy so that the children may be cured, remedied, et cetera, of the quote, mental illness or quote, sin that is homosexuality or even being transgender. Obviously, the American Psychological Association, the community and its allies are firmly opposed to this notion of homosexuality being a mental illness, but this notion still persists with those 30 states. 
As for childhood adoption, at the start of this year, a lot of LGBTQ plus nonprofits and advocacy groups were sort of up in arms when Governor Lee in Tennessee signed into law a bill allowing taxpayer funding to go to adoption agencies, even if they deny LGBTQ plus parents from adopting due to their faith. So in a sense, we are seeing states sort of adopt their own rules and own policies on religious exemptions. In this case, it's obviously harming LGBTQ plus parents in the state of Tennessee who are not being able to adopt. In terms of non-discrimination, which I also feel like is a super essential issue to talk about, and that we've seen more discussion around with talks of the Equal Rights Amendment and talks of a fully comprehensive LGBTQ plus non-discrimination act being introduced, like the Equality Act, we still have 25 states without state LGBTQ plus non-discrimination guarantees in employment and housing. There's 26 states without guarantees in public accommodations against non-discrimination. There's 35 without guarantees in credit, and then there's 16 states without guarantees of non-discrimination for LGBTQ plus state employees. So overall, we're seeing a great minority or an even larger majority of states who are not uh, taking too kindly to protecting LGBTQ plus people statewide, especially in the realm of credit. As I said before, we have 35 without guarantees in credit, including California, who is not protecting people in credit as well. And I think, as you pointed out, this issue is clearly devices, right? The numbers you just listed off, 25 states, 35, 26, 16, right? Averages out and you're basically at like half of the country is on one page and the other half is on another. Not to insinuate anything, but when it comes to social rights and civil rights like this, there's an interesting history, I guess, I'll leave it at that, between divisiveness along these types of issues. But Jessica, thank you so much for coming on. This is definitely one of the most detailed analysis I've ever received, and I learned a lot here. And like you, I'm anxiously awaiting 7 a.m. on every Monday to see what is coming out, because they keep doing all these like weak cases and none of the big ones. Thank you again for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thank you for allowing me to, to come on and sh share some amazing history facts. But definitely, we'll be waiting every Monday morning, and hopefully we'll get the answers or the clarity that we've been looking for. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. I'd like to extend a big thank you to Jessica Chiraboga for coming on and giving us an immense amount of detail and history behind some of the very cases and legislation that shape our world today. And as always, a big thank you to the producer and editor of Contested, Adam Hussein, for all the hard work he does behind the scenes. We're going to be off next week, so in two weeks, we'll see you. But in the meantime, thank you for helping us understand politics together.